We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. And so, um, if you would, please stand and open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. I will read, we'll be starting in verse 12 and reading through verse 17. Paul says this in verse 12. Put on then God as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you may also forgive. But above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed were called in one body. And be thankful. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Let's pray. Father, He says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus and give you thanks. Lord, we, we want to we do that right now. We want to do that right now. We want to we glorify you in this worship service. And so Lord, turn, turn our hearts, turn our mind, turn our thoughts to you. To your son Jesus. To his life, his death, his resurrection. To, to the love that we experience through him through Your goodness, through Your kindness in our lives today, right now. Lord, Lord, get out the distractions and let us meditate on Your goodness. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. This is the day that You have made, Lord. We rejoice and be glad in it. We love You. We thank you, and we look forward to, to diving into Colossians chapter 3, to putting on these, these, these traits, these attributes that declare to the world that we are in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. All right, well, water's on this side. Switched it up in the new year, already starting off. Here we go. All right. Well, again, as I said, we just started off the first week of the new year, and I love the new year. So one last time, happy new year, huh? That's right. Now many of us do new, year, new year's resolutions. Raise your hand if you got some. Oh gosh, come on. Raise them loud and proud. Come on. All right, some of us. I, was, I love making new year's resolutions. I think they're fruitful. I'm all about making goals, something to go after, something to attain. I got actually corrected this week that I guess it's no longer New Year's resolutions, but it's creating new habits, okay? Yeah, whatever. New Year's resolutions, bro. All right? And, and there's many of them, right? Financial, you want to get your finances in order. You maybe want to try a new hobby. Maybe you want to take a new trip. The number one is obviously losing weight, getting back in shape. That's uh, one of my big ones right now. I want to lose all the, you know, all the weight that I gained from drinking that eggnog and eating those sugar cookies every day with those icing on it, right? Who's with me? I think if it's a sin, if you don't do that, and if you don't gain 12, 10 or 12 pounds, there's something wrong there. And by the way, if that's, if that's you, 
Who has the, hey, I got to get lose some weight, got to get in better shape, go ahead and raise your hand, raise it high. You guys are looking skinnier already, all right? It's already working, you guys are already gaining there, right? Me and my chest is dropped in my drawer, so I got to get on that, all right? But again, I think it's great for you to have a goal, for me to have a goal, something to go after. I, I encourage it, because if you aim at nothing, or if you aim at everything, you'll hit it every time. You want to be specific. You want to be intentional. But we all know, we've all felt this pool that we usually start out on fire. We start out with a passion and a heart, and I'm going to do it, all this gusto. But by the end of the first month, or, or if you're really good, you know, a couple, a couple other one, months later, you, you start to lose that, that fire. You start to slip, you, and you never reach that goal. I heard a great story this past week that kind of goes along with that. It's in regards to the building of the Transcontinental Railroad. One of the greatest and hardest engineering feats of American history. Um, but as they began to build this thing, before they started, they wanted to throw this big, you know, ribbon uh, cutting celebration. They wanted to celebrate. This is a big deal. We're going we're to change the world through this railroad. So we had this big celebration as we nailed the first spike uh, on the tracks. Well, one of the investors of this project, a guy named Collis Huntington, wasn't too thrilled about this celebration of the first spike. And he says, hey, if you guys want to do that, go ahead. This is what he said. He sent him a message. He says, if you want to jubilate over driving the first spike, go ahead and do it. He says, I don't. He says, those mountains over there, they look too ugly. He says, we may fail, and if we do, I want to have as few people know about it as we can, right? So maybe that's why a lot of you guys didn't raise your hand uh, for their New Year's resolutions. I get that. But here's, here's the crux of it. He says, anyone can drive the first spike. But there are many months of labor and unrest between the first spike and the last spike. In essence, what he was saying to sum it up is like, it's easy to start out well, but it's hard to finish. And we all know this truth in our own lives. And even as Christians, we, we, we start out well. But I know you and I, many of you, and your desire is like me as Christians, we want to finish well, right? We, we want to finish the race as Paul did as he said in 2 Timothy, he wants to finish the faith. He's, he's being poured out as a drink offering. He wants to finish strong. He wants to run through that tape as hard as he can. And as soon as he finishes, he's going to fall down because he's exerted all this effort to the kingdom. He wants to finish well. You want to finish well. We want to hear those words from our king, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. You guys want to hear those words, don't you? I know I want to hear these words. Not only do we want to finish well, we also want to uh, uh, begin well. We also want to finish well. As one said, we don't want to be first spike Christians. We want to be last spike Christians. Therefore, as we, as we start 2022 here at the State of the Crossing, we want, to, we want to look forward. And can I encourage you and I to be resolved to pursue these characteristics that we're going to read in Colossians chapter 3. That these traits would be something that we would resolve to put on, grow in, develop, mature in through this year. And as you pursue them, notice that this is not a pursuit just for you individually, but we pursue these things together. Together here at the crossing, we're going to be able to complete and fulfill and be last spike Christians for the mission of God. And his mission is very simple. He wants us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. And he wants us to make disciples who make disciples. So let's be resolved in 2022 as the crossing church that these, these principles guide and direct our lives. First, we see in verse 12, we see God's resolution. 
before we make resolutions to God, he first makes a resolution to us in verse 12. Now we're jumping in the middle of a thought here with Paul. Uh, the Colossians in chapters 1 and 2, Paul writes this, these, these great theological concepts about who is Christ. And the, he talks about the gospel. He, he, has, he, tell, he warns us of false teachers. He, he gives us this great theological concept, this Christology of who is Christ and what is the gospel. And now he gives us in chapter 3, now, now here, here's the ways you implement it into your life. Here's the way you implement Christ driving and guiding your life, the gospel guiding. In verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, if you've been saved, if you repent of your sin and trusted in Christ, if that is you, you now seek and you now set your mind on things above and not on the world below. You, you seek and set your mind on kingdom principles, what Lord has for you. And then he gives us real practical advice. He says, first thing you do in verses 5 through 8 is you put to death or you take off these, these clothes of sin that once defined your life, that defined you no more because you're a new creature in Christ. You, you take off, you put to death the former characteristics, the sexual immorality, the impurity, the desires, the evil desires, the covetousness, the anger, the wrath, the slander, the obscene talk from your mouth. You take that off. You take those clothes off. Those clothes stink. And he says, what you do is you put on these new clothes in verse 12. He says, put on then these clothes. But even before he tells you what to put on, he reminds us of who we are in Christ. Look at that little word in verse 12, as. It's a very important word. You want to circle that word. He says, put on then as. This is your standing. This is who you are in Christ. If you've been raised with Christ, this is what God has done for you. He has chosen you. He has made you holy. And He loves you. And this is where we begin. Paul first establishes your identity in Christ, in Him before he tells us what to do. He says, this is who you are in Christ. This is what God has resolved to do for you. And the first thing he says is that he, he's chosen you. He's chosen you. You and I are God's chosen ones. The, the one who spoke and created this world chose you specifically, individually. This is one of the great doctrines of the Bible. It's also known, by the, known as the doctrine of election. It's a great doctrine, surrounded by some, ministry, uh, some mystery, but it's, it's an incredible and awesome doctrine. I mean, you think about it, that God has chosen you. He has handpicked you. And not because you were worthy, not because you're lovely, same with me, not because I was worthy or lovely, but because God is love, because God is good. Ephesians, there's, there's hundreds of verses that talk about the doctrine of election and God choosing you, but my favorite one is Ephesians 1, 4, where he says, He chose you. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. When I was a young man, when I first came to know, the Christ, uh, came to know Christ, I was, had the, some great mentors. And one of the, the people that they introduced me to was this guy named Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. I call him Chuck, Chuck Spurgeon. I love Charles Spurgeon. And this is what he said. I, I, I heard this, this, this kind of paraphrase of the doctrine of election Charles is teaching. This is what he said. He says, I believe the doctrine of election. Because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should have never have chosen Him. He gives this truth. This next sentence is, is true, but it's also kind of, of, of funny. He's entering some humor right there. He says, I am sure He chose me before I was born or else He would have never chosen me after. Right? We get that. And He must have elected me for some reasons unknown to me, for I could never find any reason in myself why 
he should have looked upon me with such a special love. The reason why I love this phrase, and the reason why the, the doctrine of election and you being chosen by God is such good news, there's many of them, but let me give you a couple. That means first, as we look back in Ephesians, there was never a time where you were not known and loved by God. Just let that sink in. Before the foundation of the world, He knew you, He loved you, and He says, you are mine. There's never been a time where you are not known or loved by God. And secondly, all the pressure's off for us to perform. All the pressure's off for us to perform. God has already chosen us. There's nothing that we can do to earn or merit His favor or His love. Our identity is set because we are in Christ. As chosen, as, as, as Christians, God's love for us and our identity, our worth to Him, again, is not in what we can achieve, but what, but what we do is what we receive it. We receive it. Now, I know there's many of you in here that, that probably have gone or had experienced love through performing, through achieving. In fact, that's the only way you would, you would get love from your mom, from your dad, from maybe your boss. And sadly, maybe from even some other Christians. The only way you'd feel love accepted was by achieving, by doing something. It's a tough way. Many of us have experienced that. This is where we had to find our worth and identity. But because of God choosing us, the pressure's off and we don't have to do that. We don't have to walk in fear because we don't want to disappoint people. Or in particular, we don't have to walk in fear because we don't want to disappoint God. You see, this is not the case in the Christian life. You and I, this is why this doctrine of election is so important. You and I can never disappoint God. We can never disappoint God or let God down because we were never holding Him up. He holds us up. So that's one. You Rest in that truth. You've been chosen by God. It's good news. Second, he says, not only have I chose you, but, but I've also made you holy. I, I've set you apart from others. I've, I, I've made you pure. Uh, again, our sins were as crimson as we sing, but now he's made you white as snow. And the holiness here, he's talking about positional holiness, not practical holiness, but positional holiness. Positional holiness is this, is when God imputes or credits our account with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. To you and me on the basis of Christ's sacrificial death and full atonement for our sins that He paid for on the cross. We are perfectly pure now because of what Christ has done. We are in Christ, positionally holy. Now there is a thing called practical holiness where we walk on this long this journey in sanctification here and now. And, and through this life we have our ups and downs. We we sin, we, we obey, we sin, we obey. We have these ups and downs. But here's the thing about because we are positionally holy, even though we may fluctuate in our practical holiness, we will never fall out of the love and favor of God. Because positionally we are set in Christ. And when He looks at us, He doesn't see a sinner, He sees a saint. Thirdly, He says it even gets even better. Again, this is God resolving. This is what He's done for us. This is who we are in Christ. He says not only are we chosen or made holy, but we are beloved. We are beloved by God. We are loved by God the Father. Uh, Jesus was, was called by God the Father His beloved. Over and over again, God the Father said, hey, this is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And now that we are in Christ, that means we are God's beloved. That means He has set 
His affections on you and me. And we can never fall out of His love. I just want to just meditate on that thought for a moment. As God the Father loved Jesus, His Son, that is the same love in which He loves you with. Jesus was God's beloved, or, and we are God's beloved. We are loved by God. God has set His affections on you and me, and He loves us with an everlasting love. He loves us with an intimate love, a sacrificial love, a giving love, and a personal love. One of my favorite hymns we sing around here is, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. And one of the lyrics is this, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love, leading onward, leading homeward, where? To the glorious rest above. That's where God's love is leading you. Not only do we, His love helps us start out well, but it leads us so we will finish well. It leads us to the glorious rest above. God loves you. And this is where we begin. Before we, we do anything, before we put anything on, we recognize who we are in Christ. This is our identity, that we are chosen, that we are holy, and that we are loved by God. And now Paul says, once, we, once he slips that in quickly, now he says, this is what you can do. Now, now that we know our identity for Christ, now we know how to live out that identity for Christ. And that leads us to number two, our resolutions. Our resolutions. Now, if you guys are familiar with the Puritans, this might sound like a Puritan sermon because i got 12 points for us right now, all right? But we're going to rip through these quickly. So what I want you to do as we go through these, don't get overwhelmed with point 9, 10, 11, 12. Just sit and, and, and just, just listen right now. And then I'll give you some very practical applications to this in the end. So just right now, sit, listen, see what Paul is calling you and me to put on as we are in Christ Jesus. And again, this idea of putting on and putting off is, is a metaphor for like clothes. We, 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 we take off those stinky clothes of sin and we put on these new clothes and attributes and traits of the kingdom of God. And first he says, put on compassionate hearts. The Bible is so consistent. The Holy Spirit is so consistent with our, whoever he's, he's spurring on to write God's Word. And here he's using Paul. And where does he start? He starts inward. He starts at the heart. He didn't start with our actions. He says, no, first put on and have a compassionate heart. A compassionate heart means to have a heart that's tender. A heart that's soft. It has the idea of weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. It has the idea of, of entering into another person's situation. A, a walking in their shoes. To feel the same thing deeply. And in particular... Having a compassionate heart here, I think Paul is addressing those who are less fortunate than yourself. Those who are less fortunate than yourself. And this is what Jesus has done for us. In Matthew 29, one of my favorite verses in Matthew 9, not 29, in Matthew 9, he says this, when he, when he saw the crowds coming to him, it said that Jesus felt compassion for them. His heart was moved. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless. Like sheep without a shepherd. He looked, at the, he looked at the people and he saw their need. He saw their helplessness. He said, these people need help. His heart was moved. And again, if we're in Christ, if this is Christ's heart, this is now our heart. We have compassionate hearts. And as Christians who make up the church, we should be the most compassionate people 
on the planet. And the church, where the walking wounded experience the most compassion, it should be here in the church. It should be here in the church. Again, because we have experienced the passion of Christ. So that's number one. And number two, put on kindness. Kindness goes with a compassionate heart because the compassionate heart is the, the ability to feel and, and see something and it moves in your heart. That, and kindness is the action, is the overflow from a compassionate heart. Kindness is the action that flows from a compassionate heart. It is, it is treating others graciously, with dignity, with respect. It's being decent to one another. And boy, don't we need that today. Don't, don't we need to just treat each other with kindness today? Because we understand that we are all going through a difficult situation. We can feel it because we're walking through it and we can extend this kindness. Um, also, we celebrate, we support the Alpha Center and they're making their big push there. We have the baby bottles out there uh, to support their movement to help, you know, uh, life in the womb, um, to combat the abortion uh, culture that we live in. And, and, th- and this is how compassionate and, and kindness works, that, that we know that, that, that life is precious. Life in the womb is precious because that's where God has knitted and, and shaped each and every one of us. And we know since Roe v. Wade and whatever, in the early 70s when it was passed, some 63 million babies have been killed through abortion. And that's tragic. And that should move our hearts. That when we hear that, that we should have compassion for those children, those in the womb. It should move us. And that moves us to action. It moves us to kindness. So, so how can we get involved? We can, we can be praying. We can grab those baby bottles and we can put our extra spare change in because that's going to help this ministry, the Alpha Center, move and minister to those ladies who are in need or find themselves in this situation. Uh, You can serve at the Alpha Center. You, You can foster. You can adopt. There's so many ways in which you could act with kindness and help these children. But not only help the children, but also have a compassionate heart for the moms. Those that are walking through this situation have a decision to make, but also those who have made the decision to terminate or kill their baby, their child. They need love. They need grace extended to them. And that should happen from you and me. That should come first and foremost from the church. We've had many ladies, even in this body, that have gone through that process and, 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 and their souls are hurting and only the gospel of Jesus Christ can come in and restore them. We need to have compassionate hearts for them as well. And kindness. So we have compassionate hearts. We have, we have kindness. There he says, put on humility. We, we, we talk a lot, about, a lot about humility here because it's all over the Bible. It's all over the Bible. It's one of the main traits of Jesus, that he humbled himself as God and became man. We just celebrated it in our Advent season. It's a good thing, humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And not only that, I would add on to that uh, what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, and the adding is, and counting more, others more important than yourself. So humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less, and counting others more important than yourself. Now to the original Roman audience that, that heard this, to, to be humble, and we, the Christian kingdom values, we hold it up as a trait of virtue, they would say, this is not a trait of virtue. They would look down on humility Humility was not considered a virtue, it was considered a weakness. 
once said, only weak people are humble people. The Romans in this time, the Romans loved qualities like pride, self-confidence, the ability to assert yourself and others, the, the, the pull your up by your own bootstraps mentality. Sound familiar? That's why I love Isaiah 66.2 combined with James chapter 4. Isaiah 66.2 says, the Lord will look upon this one, the one who is humble. This is, this is the one who, who the Lord looks upon, the one who is humble. And then James 4 says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So, this is what's crazy. You put these two together. If you clothe yourselves, if you put on humility on a daily basis, you will draw the gaze of the sovereign king to you. He will look upon you. He will gaze upon you. He will give you his gifts and he will give you his grace. So we're called to put on humility. Fourth, put on meekness. Now when we hear the word meekness, no one's like, oh, I don't want to be meekness because we associate meekness with what? Weakness. Why? Because it rhymes. I mean, that's the only other reason why. Because it rhymes. But really, they're opposite. Meekness has nothing to do with weakness. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It has the idea of power or strength under control. It was used back in the day where, where the, the, uh, of a bridled horse. Uh, the bit, the bridle, the reins of the horse. This little contraption controls the power of the horse. We have some people that, uh, that rodeo in here, and they know this to be true, that you have this strength and this power of this horse, and you can move it with just one hand. You can make it go wherever you want to do. You have full control over its power. This is what meekness is. It's, it's, it's power or strength under control. And I want to, I want to, I want to in particular talk to the men right now. To the men in this room. We need to put on and grow in meekness. Uh, Moses was considered meek. Jesus was considered meek. Uh, we talk about at man school that we want to be tenacious and tender. Uh, in other words, we want to be meek men. Power, strength, under control. When, um, when my boys were little, I have three boys. When they were about five, six, or seven years old, we would always wrestle. We would always wrestle with them. And I'd, I'd get down on my knees, you know, and I'd be like, all right, let's go. It's go time. And then they would, uh, they would pull like that Smeagol move uh, that did on Samwise Ganji. Do you guys remember that? When they first met, Smeagol just went up and just jumped on his neck and just tried to choke him out, Right? And, and that's what they would do to me, and I would wait for it. And they would come, and I'd be on my knees, and they'd just come, and they would tackle me, and they'd put their arms around my neck, and they're trying to, to strangle me, and I'd fall over, and I'd be like, ah! And they would pin me, and be like, oh, you win. And they'd get up and be like, yes! Now, could I have just with my hand just tossed them off me? Yeah. But this is meekness. It's, it's, it's obviously I bridled my strength. Men, you need to, to bridle your strength. There are times where you're going to need to use your strength and your power. But there's also times for you to be tender. Tender and tenacious. Just think about Jesus. Again, Jesus was both. He was tender, was he not? Again, we just talked about his compassionate heart. He looked over the world and said, he was compassionate. The way he treated the woman at the well. The way that he treated Mary and Martha when their brother Lazarus died. He was tender, but he was also tenacious. Remember, he made a whip and he cleansed the temple with it. He went to town on the temple and kicked those out that were treating his temple in a profane way. Men, we need to be meek. We need to be meek. 
tender and tenacious. Fifth, we need to put on patience. Now, I know none of us need to worry about that, so let's move on to the next one, right? No, of course. <laughs> this is one we probably all need to work on. And of course, writing a sermon, the Lord has given me opportunity over and over again this week to be patient. We all need this one. It's the ability to wait without getting frustrated. It has the idea of forbearing with one another or in a situation. And it's linked to perseverance. A patient person is a, is a persevering person. I love again what old Chuck Spurgeon said. He said this, it was patience and perseverance that the snail made it to the ark, right? Isn't that good? It's good. We know this. Uh, my daughter Taylor, she gave uh, uh, our family, in particular my, my wife and I, a sign, I forget, a couple years ago. And she was probably sending a message, but this is what it said. The day you plant the seed is not the day you eat of its fruit. There's patience. The, the, plant, the, the seed needs to be cultivated, needs to be watered, needs to be grown, it needs to be pruned. Think about how patient Jesus was. He had to wait 30 years before he had a public ministry. Can you imagine that? Jesus waited 30 years before he really came on the scene with his public ministry. He was patient. We also need to put on patience. Who do you need or in what situation do you need to be patient with today? So that's six and seven we're talking about putting on clothing and all these traits, the next two kind of go together and we might think of them as our, our shoes. As our shoes. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Those two go hand in hand. We, we need to bear with one another. We need to tolerate one another. In the street language, we use street language today or, or translate this word today is like we need to put up with one another. And boy, don't we need to put up with one another oh, right now. This has the idea that, that, that we're going to rub one another wrong. We're going we're to sin against one another. We're going to make others stumble around us. because it's, it's just who we are. And in particular, we're going to do that with those who are in closest proximity with us. That we're around the most. Our spouses, our siblings, our co-workers, etc. And... and and when we sin against each other, our first response shouldn't be, shouldn't be flight, shouldn't be law, it should be forbearing one another. It should be forbearance, it should be, should be bearing, it should be tolerating, it should be putting up. And that, that, that bearing, when that person recognizes they're, they're rubbing you wrong way, they're, they're, there's a grievance that you're causing them uh, to stumble, and they ask for forgiveness, we need to forgive and not hold a grudge, and not not forgive. In fact, Paul gives us no room not to forgive when someone has sinned against us and asks for forgiveness. Paul says that not forgiving is not an option. Look at it. He says, we are to forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. You also must forgive. Jesus makes it even clearer in Matthew 6. And I this prayer, he says, if you don't forgive, then your Father in heaven will not forgive you. Who do you need to forgive right now? Who do you need to extend forgiveness with? Who do you need to forbear with? See, the way we bear along people or tolerate people is we, we forgive them. That's kind of an action. It's, they go together. Listen, forgiven people are forgiving people. 
Think about it. If Christ has forgiven the person that has offended you, should you not also forgive them? Or is your standard higher than Christ's? Let me lighten it up a little bit. My wife and I, a number of years ago, uh, I sinned against her because I, I do every day. You know, it's just... Oh, you guys can laugh at that because you, you guys do too, all right? So it's all right, right? And so I did something stupid and she said, you know what, I'm not, I'm not going to forgive. Love doesn't cover multiple sins. I'm not going to forgive Aaron. I'm going to make him pay. And so for that whole week, she just... When we talked, she just gave me short, simple answers. Yes, no, I don't know, great. And at the end of the week, I came to her and I just said, Babe, thank you for loving me well so this, this week. He said, you, I just said, man, you just served me and you loved me so well. And she's like, what? I was trying to punish you, right? That, that never works out. Holding a grudge never works out. We need to bear with one another. We need to forgive one another. Forgiven people are forgiving people. Number eight, Colossians 3.14. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Again, don't you love the consistency of the Bible? In the, in the New Testament, every, every page seems like it's love one another, love one another, because God has loved you. Love one another, love one another, love one another. Love is the motive of everything. Love is the motive of the story of redemption. And here Paul highlights it again. I love how one commentator said it. He said this, love is like the overcoat that covers and binds all of their, their clothing together. It's the overcoat. It binds everything else together. So how do, you, how do you know if you clothe yourself in love? Well, you know that you understand what love is biblically. We know that love is more than just a feeling or mere words. 1 John 3.18 says this, Let us not merely love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. We know in Scripture that love is an action. For God so loved the world, He gave. But God demonstrated His own love towards us that we were sinners. He gave Himself. He sacrificed Himself. He went to the cross for you and for me. Of course, the great, the great um, section of Scripture in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, <coughs> 1 Corinthians 13 when Rhea and I do premaritals with couples, we, we have them do this to, to kind of put the weight of what love is. It's more than a feeling or a word. It's an action. And we lead through love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy. So we read it through and now we say, now insert your name where the word love is. And it's pretty funny because in particular when we get to some people, um, the first phrase is love is patient. And so when if I was doing it, it'd be like Aaron is patient, Rita would start laughing right there, right? But we see the action. Aaron is patient. Aaron is kind. Aaron does not envy or boast. Aaron is not arrogant or rude. You see how it brings the weight of an action of what love is? And notice again, 1 Corinthians 13, what are the first three? Love is patient, kind, and humble. And it just keeps on going on. So that'd be a good exercise for you to do. How, how are you doing being, putting on love and extending love? Well, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and put your name in there. And say like, oh, I need to grow in patience, kindness, goodness, or whatever. Love. Ninth. And let the peace of Christ ruin your hearts to which you indeed were called one body. See, since you and I are in Christ, we have His peace. That's an amazing thought. It's an amazing thought. You have the peace of Christ. The peace of Christ is yours. And let the peace of Christ 
rule in your hearts. That idea of rule is actually the, it was the idea of that of an umpire. An umpire makes decisions, ball strikes, and here the umpire makes the decision, peace. Peace over any circumstance you find yourself in. You have the peace of Christ. <coughs> and this peace is an unshakable peace. There's a rest, there's a security, there's a contentment in your heart and in our minds, no matter what situation we are walking through, because we know that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection accomplish everything that pertains for life and godliness for you and for me. So no matter what life throws at us, we can have peace and security. Why? Because we are in Christ, and He has already overcome the world. We can have peace, because we know for sure without a shadow of our doubt that our sins are forgiven. Our past, our present, and our future sins. We, we can have peace because we know all the suffering, all the shame, all the failure, all the pain, all the hurt, all the sin, everything that we do wrong, everything that we experience from us and to us, God is working for His good and for, for His glory and for our good. We can have peace because we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Put on the peace of Christ. This is the peace that rules our hearts individually, and then when we let the peace of Christ rule individually, we can uh, spread that around to one another and walk in unity. Again, the church should be the greatest place where we see peace happen. We see unity happen. So Paul tells us to put on peace. Tenthly, verse 16 and that the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Let the word of, of Christ dwell with you richly. And we see that the peace of Christ is connected to the word of Christ. Because those that have the peace of Christ, where, where Christ's peace rules, is where the rule is where the word of God dwells. It's where the word of God dwells. The Word of God, God's special revelation to us, the thing that we hold in our hand, His Bible is the main way in which He has made Himself known to us. His heart, His passions, His desires for you and for me. How we are to live, how we are to worship Him, how we are to honor Him is all right here. Every Christian that I know that has a, a, a vibrant walk with Christ, this leads and guides and directs Him. The Scriptures are the lamp unto His feet and the light unto their path. When you see a, a Bible that is worn out, that's marked up, that's falling apart, <clears throat> it usually belongs to a, a person whose life is not, regardless of the circumstance or the situation that they're in. Why? Because they have the peace of Christ. They have the Word of God guiding and directing their lives, both individually but also corporately. Again, we want to make disciples here. You want to be a good disciple maker. You need to know God's Word because it's God's Word that you teach and admonish with one another with all wisdom. This is wisdom. Psalm 119 says that if you are a Christian and you have God's Word, you have more reason, more intellect, more understanding than all of your teachers that don't know Jesus. God's Word guides and directs us. <coughs> it grows us individually, but also, again, corporately. We can serve one another through teaching, encouraging one another through God's Word, but also admonishing, warning, helping others not fall off the horse or fall off the wagon, 
but with grace and truth, we can admonish one another. When we see someone going off or going astray, we can bring them back, not on our own authority, but on the authority of God with grace and truth. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then when we do this, when we're guided and directed by God's perfect Word, it brings us to doxology. It causes us to, to worship in song through music. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. It causes us joy to well up in our hearts. And we, and we and it can't stay in here. We've got we to gotta shout. We've got to sing in Advent. We looked at the songs of Advent season. We talked about it. Man, we see these people that come in contact with the, with the incarnated God, Christ Jesus. And what do they do? They sing. They come in contact with the living Word and it causes them to sing about His glory and His greatness. So the Word and worship, they go together. And here's the thing is, when we planted this church back in 2010, this is what was central. This is what was going to guide the crossing every Sunday and, and, and every, every, every day that we're alive. We're going to be guided by God's Word and we're going we're to worship through song. So in 2022, let the, the Word of Christ dwell in your hearts richly and then sing about it. 11, we see finally, but actually there's a 12th one, verse 17. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. What this verse means is that in your worship through the Word and music, it just doesn't last an hour and a half here on a Sunday morning. It just, it just, it just when, when this gathering ends, it doesn't mean the, the, the ministry of the Word or worship ends, when you walk through those doors. No, it's a constant it guides you every single minute of every single day. It is your true north. That whatever we do in word or deed, we do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God. A reporter asked Kanye West when he became a Christian, are you a Christian artist now? You can see how Kanye was discipled well. He said, I'm a Christian everything. I'm a Christian everything. And we see that this, that's the same for us. I'm a Christian husband. I'm a Christian father. Obviously, I'm a Christian pastor. Well, that's good, right? Uh, I'm a Christian friend. For you, you're, are you a Christian engineer? You're a Christian teacher. You're a Christian biologist. You're a Christian salesman. You're a Christian worker. Whatever it is, you're a Christian. That is your identity. It just doesn't leave here when you walk out those doors. It's who you are first and foremost before what you do. It informs everything that you do. I said there was a twelfth one, because if you notice, I skipped a trait between verses 15 and 16. Did you guys catch which one I skipped? Be thankful. Be thankful. Because really in these last three verses, the word thankfulness or thankful appears three times. So you can make the argument that this is Paul's main thrust in these last three verses is to be thankful. Have a thankful heart. Thankfulness is an attitude. <clears throat> Thankfulness is an attitude. You and I can choose to be thankful or we can choose to be bitter or indifferent each and every day. I, I could argue that the great, next to the greatest trait of love, that thankfulness is the most important one on this list. Having a, art, having a heart of, of gratitude, 
of gratefulness. Because that will, that will, that will, that will help you not become bitter or not to feel entitled. For me personally, I've been meditating this on a long, a long, long time. And trying to cultivate a heart of thanksgiving. Of looking at the things that God has blessed me with and, and enjoying them and being thankful and not looking to what I do not have. It's been a life changer for me. It's been a huge blessing for me. Regardless of the circumstance I may find myself in, whether I'm on green pastures or I'm in a valley, you and I want to battle for faithfulness and gratefulness. There are many reasons, but one point out this, this in my studies, point out this. Um, thankfulness keeps you and me from thinking I'm owed something from the Lord. Or I'm entitled. Again, it keeps me in a posture of gratefulness and thinking of what Christ has done for me and all the good gifts He's given me. You see, uh, the person who is bitter or entitled says, you owe me for all that I'm doing for you, Lord. The thankful person says, I can do nothing to repay you. So thank you for what you have done for me. The person who is bitter says, look at me. The person who is thankful or greater says, look to Christ. The person who is bitter and tired says, I'm jealous of others. I deserve more. I deserve to have more. I deserve to have a certain life. I don't deserve to have this certain ailment or disease. The person who is thankful says, Man, I'm happy for you. You got that promotion. And is content of the life that the sovereign king has given them in his kingdom. Thankfulness. This would be a great trait to start out 22 is just to write all the things that you are thankful about. I mean, you could probably spend now for the next seven months just writing things about your, what you're thankful for and what the Lord has done for you. You can start out with big things. <coughs> Obviously, you're thankful for my wife, my kids. I'm thankful for you, the Crossing Church. I'm thankful for a house, a roof over my head that keeps me protected from the cold elements. For clothes to put on my body, for cars and trucks to drive. I'm thankful for the mountains, for creation. We can think of the big things, but also the little things. Like, I'm thankful for toenail clippers. Anywhere else? I'm thankful for whoever brought the biscuits and sausage and gravy this morning. Amen? I mean, when you stop and pause and think of all the good gifts that God has given you, there will be no room for bitterness. No room for entitlement. And your life will be a life of joy and happiness because you recognize all the goodness of God in your life. And again, things that you and I do not deserve. That just shows us the goodness of God in our lives. So there we go. That was 12 points there in that one, one deal. Good job. You guys made it through. And I know we've covered a ton. And again, you might be overwhelmed. I mean, I was overwhelmed trying to write this thing. I mean, there's so much more we could say. There's so, I mean, obviously, we could, this, is, this is like you know, a 12-year sermon series if we really wanted to do this. And we summed it up in 40-plus minutes. And you might be saying, like, man, I, I don't even know where to start. If, you, if you're asking me to resolve to, to let these be my New Year's resolutions for 2022, where do I start? And it's the, it goes back to the old, the old wisdom of how do you eat an elephant in one day? Or 
How do you eat an elephant? You take it one, you know, one bite at a time. That's how you eat an elephant. And I don't know who would want to ever eat an elephant, but you know, um, you something that large, you eat one bite at a time. And so this is, this is how I want to kind of break it down for us and, and apply it. First is just remember who you are. Remember, before you, the reason why you can put on these things is because there's someone who's already done something for you. And that is Christ. His life, death, and resurrection. That you are chosen. That you are made holy. And that you are loved by God. That's where you begin. That's where your identity is set in. You don't have to earn anything. You don't have to merit anything. You don't have to achieve everything. You receive that. You receive that through repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's where you begin. That's the foundation which everything is built on. And then we start to put on the clothes. First, again, we, we, we take off. Every day we're <clears throat> taking off that, those sinful patterns. Because you can't put out these clothes on over stinky workout clothes. It just doesn't go well, right? So you take off the old and you, and you put on these new, new traits. And so I'd say, hey, we got, we got 12. We just went through 12. Just each month, just pick one. So this month, January, let's just focus on having a compassionate heart. Be intentional about meditating on that and, and developing that. And what you're going to see is they're all going inter, to intertwine, but be focused on this one. And take one a month and be focused on it. And then bring others in in your life group and in your journey group. Say, hey man, I want to focus on being thankful. I want, I want to focus on being kind. Whatever, whatever one it is. And maybe you might need to focus on one for a couple months in a row because you're really being moved by this. And so just take one at a time. Bring others in to, to help you with that, to be praying for you, to be encouraging you along this journey. And I think as we do this, as we, we, as we set our face as a church, as a crossing in 2022 with these principles leading, guiding, and directing us, when we get to December 31st of 2022, we're going to look back and we're going to celebrate all that the Lord has done and it's going to be incredible. It's going to be incredible. And then, as we just continue to keep this as the, the mantra of our lives, whenever the Lord calls us home, we are all going to hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Not only did you start well, but you will finish well. Not only will you be a first spike Christian, but you and I will be last spike Christians. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Lord, it's so good. So good. Lord, thank you first and foremost that, that we have been chosen by you. That we've been made holy by you. And that we've been loved by you. And Lord, now that we know who we are in Christ, that compels us to live out who we are in Christ. So Lord, as we look at these traits, these characteristics, first let us put off the sin and let us put on all these traits. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.